Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Today, finally, the U.S. House of Representatives turned on its television system in living color, and its deliberations could be seen beyond the House chamber. It's March 19th, 1979, and David Brinkley is anchoring NBC Nightly News. They held off a long time in the well-founded belief that there is a little ham in every politician, and in the fear that some of the more flamboyant would use the House floor as a stage to play to the cameras. But there almost aren't any flamboyant politicians anymore. Most of them now look and behave like the managers of Holiday Inns. I love this clip, and it's nothing at all against David Brinkley. The truth is, he was only saying what just about everybody in Washington was thinking when this strange new TV channel appeared. This was back in the dawn of the cable television era. Most people still only had antenna TVs that could get a handful of channels. In this segment, Brinkley is introducing a report from a young NBC correspondent named Chris Wallace. The House almost seemed to go out of its way not to perform for the cameras. Resolved that there is hereby established in the House of Representatives a select committee to be known as the Select Committee on Committees, here and after referred to as the Select Committee. And that's how most of the media covered the birth of C-SPAN. C-SPAN would, in fact, reveal a lot of flamboyant politicians who like to perform for the cameras. But that was not supposed to be its purpose. From the very beginning, nobody completely figured out that this was not meant to be television. It was meant to be a service. This is Brian Lamb, who came up with the idea for C-SPAN and then had to wait around for technology to catch up and for Congress to come around. That finally happened in the late 70s. Lamb was working as a trade journalist, and one day he was interviewing a congressman named Lionel Van Dierlen. And Lamb noticed a TV set in Van Dierlen's office. It was part of a closed-circuit system with a view of the House floor. And he made the congressman an offer. So I said, we could figure out how to get this up on the satellite and get it into cable television homes. And he said, really? And uh, I said, yeah. Uh, he said, well, can you, can you write me a speech about that? And I said, well, let me think about it. And I went back to my office, and literally, this is amazing, about an hour later, he calls me, he says, you aren't going to believe this. Brian, but they're going to debate this in about two hours. And the House passed it overwhelmingly. When those camera lights flicked on in March of 1979, anyone in America could watch what was happening in the House at any given moment, as long as they actually had cable television. Of course, as those of us who grew up in the 80s know, that hardly meant everybody. When C-SPAN came to Congress, only about one in five households in America actually had cable. You could watch C-SPAN in Hawaii and couldn't watch it on K Street. It's true. Ironically enough, Washington, D.C. was one of the last places in the United States to get cable. And maybe this explains why some members of Congress, like Speaker Tip O'Neill, were a little slow to understand just how powerful C-SPAN could be. It's something that would come back to haunt O'Neill. Every month, more and more Americans were signing up for cable. And that meant 
that more and more were stumbling across this strange new channel where members of Congress were the stars. Now, O'Neill and his generation didn't quite see that potential, but the newer generation did. Here's a piece of trivia for you. Who delivered the first speech from the House floor that was televised by C-SPAN? Mr. Speaker, on this historic day, the House of Representatives opens its proceedings for the first time to televised coverage. I wish to the answer? A 30-year-old Democratic congressman from Tennessee named Al Gore. And there was no one in the House who recognized the transformative power of the television camera like Newt Gingrich. He'd barely been there two months when C-SPAN went live, but he couldn't have dreamed up a better tool for his mission of toppling the permanent Democratic Congress. Think about it. Gingrich was a freshman member of the minority party, a party that seemed like it would be the minority power forever. NBC, ABC, CBS, The New York Times, The Washington Post, no one was lining up to interview him, to give him a platform to spread his message, even to give him the time of day. But now, all of a sudden, he had a way around all of them. He could go to the House floor, and whoever was watching C-SPAN anywhere in America would see him and hear him, and maybe they'd even like what they were hearing. And if he could make enough noise, create enough drama, build a big enough grassroots following, well, then all those big establishment media outlets would have to treat him like a serious political player. Let me put in my perennial plug. I think that C-SPAN uh, is a fabulous institution. And I think if anybody, I can say this and you can't, if anybody who's watching has relatives who have a cable system that doesn't have C-SPAN, they ought to call them in the morning and complain because those relatives are missing a real chance for education. I think it's good for all of America to watch all of us in this nonpartisan, open way, and you do a fabulous job. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Come back and see us again and have a safe trip home. We're going to continue to take calls as Congressman Ron Paul. I'm Steve Kornacki, and this is The Revolution. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust. Video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. All sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Episode 2, The Newt Show. We'll get to some major televised drama in a bit. But first of all, I've got to explain where Newt Gingrich was coming from and why he saw C-SPAN as such a powerful tool. C-SPAN is avowedly nonpartisan. Whatever party you're from, if you're on the floor of the House and you're recognized to speak, you're going to be on the air. 
It was anybody that wanted to use the system, and a lot of people did, but they weren't controversial. This is Brian Lamb again. What made the difference was that the conservatives were starting to disrupt. For Gingrich, this would be the key to the whole thing. Think about where America was politically in the late 1970s. It had voted for a Republican president in one of the biggest routes of history just in 1972. That was Richard Nixon's 49-state romp over George McGovern. I noticed some of the commentators are referring to the fact that it may be the greatest victory in American political history. Let me tell you... And it was about to elect Ronald Reagan in another seismic landslide in 1980, after which he delivered a victory speech to a rapturous crowd in Los Angeles. I am not frightened by what lies ahead, and I don't believe the American people are frightened by what lies ahead. To Gingrich and to others on the right, Americans were sending some clear signals that they were both skeptical of liberal Democrats and open to Republicans, to conservative Republicans in brand new ways. Now the challenge was to connect all of that to Congress, to get those same people who were suddenly rejecting Democrats for president to keep going down the ballot and to reject the entire Democratic Party. C-SPAN was a virtual invitation to turn Congress into a real-time television drama. And it was one that Newt eagerly accepted. Of course, and especially in those early days, Newt's biggest obstacle to power was his own party. We talked about this in episode one. In the House back then, many Republicans got along with Democrats. They worked comfortably with them. They socialized with them after hours. A lot of the Republicans in Congress weren't even that conservative, and a lot of the Democrats weren't that liberal. The lines between the parties could blur easily on any number of issues. And above all, most members of the GOP thought it was impossible that they'd ever be in the majority. And too many of them were too comfortable with that. At least that's the way Newt saw it, as he later told Brian Lamb in a C-SPAN interview. I felt that somebody had to try to create a majority. I felt that somebody had to take responsibility for trying. And even when I fell on my face, I was falling forward. And that that was better than sitting and doing nothing. So, one member at a time, he set out to build an army. Can you remember the first time you met Newt Gingrich? Um, I don't necessarily remember the first time that I met him, but I remember uh, the first serious conversation that we had. I spoke with Vin Weber, a former congressman from Minnesota, who was Newt's first recruit. The last day of the session in 1982, I was down in the well of the house for some reason. Newt came up to me and, and he, he said to me, so what are you doing for the next 10 years? I I laughed at him and he, but he was serious. He said, he said, we're going to take control of the house of representatives, but it's not a short term project. And I said, you know, sign me up. That's what I'm here for. The second person Gingrich called on was Bob Walker, who had just finished his third term. He represented a district West of Philadelphia. He recruited people who had shown a um, penchant toward activism on the floor. Whether, whether they were moderates or whether they were conservatives and so on, he, he brought us all together. Bob Walker didn't just have a penchant for inserting himself into other people's business on the floor. He'd been assigned that role. Bob Michael and Trent Lott came to me at one point, and uh, the guys who had been the so-called official objectors on the floor, for a variety of reasons, were leaving. And we were left without anybody on the floor really guarding the floor uh, day in and day out. Trent Lott was the minority whip. That was the second-ranking Republican in the House back in the 1980s. The minority leader, remember, 
was Bob Michael. That's the Bob Michael who was great friends with Tip O'Neill. Now, both Bob Michael and Trent Lott were only comfortable going so far when it came to fights with the Democrats. The Republican leadership didn't want to totally uh, separate themselves from the Democratic leadership. And so they would go into these meetings and they would say, we understand and we'd like to go along with you here, Mr. Speaker, but you know Walker, you know, he's an SOB. He's not going to go along with this. He's going to object to it. So you're going to have to go out and talk to him uh, because uh, we can't do anything with him. (laughs) And so often they'd walk out of those meetings and uh, Trent would come by and wink at me. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I object to the vote on grounds the quorum is not present. Make a point of order the quorum is not present. This experience got Bob Walker comfortable playing the role of bad cop, which also made him a great asset for Newt Gingrich's army. We needed to basically form a faction. We needed to have a team of members and not always act as individual entrepreneurs. Vin Weber says this was Gingrich's innovation. It sounds pretty basic, but I would think it was a huge insight. And we worked very hard and did very specific things to try to make that happen. The Gingrich Army was small to start, but its mission was to show the rest of the Republicans that, well, that life in the House for them didn't have to be the way it had been for decades. What they needed was to create and to dramatize a clear contrast with the ruling Democrats and to capture the public's imagination with it. They wanted the public to think of the Democrats as the party of the liberal welfare state and to see Republicans as the exact opposite. We were conservative instead of liberal. We were opportunity instead of welfare. And we were a society rather than a state. The conservative opportunity society. That's what Newton's his allies called themselves. Here's Vin Weber again. Newt did not come in one day and say, I want to form the Conservative Opportunity Society. We had many meetings to talk about what is it we actually stand for, and importantly, how we contrast to what we think is the other philosophy, the governing philosophy of the Democrats. And that contrast was Conservative Opportunity Society versus a liberal, liberal welfare, state. welfare state. Right. Talk about what you were trying to convey there. The word liberal was not a a positive word, and it was unpopular with the American people. It connoted big spending and big regulation and high taxes. So we knew that that was an important distinction, liberal versus conservative. There were actually some people at the time of Watergate that had talked about changing the name of the Republican Party to the conservative party because Republican became a dirty word over Watergate, but conservative was a very popular word with the American people, more popular than liberal by far. By the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan's revolution had swept the country and conservatism was ascendant. But the energy for that conservatism came more from outside the House than from within it. And Gingrich wanted to channel it. Enter a pivotal meeting in Wisconsin. Let's go back and start with the Racine meeting. That's Brian Lamb again. He didn't just run C-SPAN, he also conducted its biggest interviews. And in one of them, he asked Newt Gingrich about a gathering in Racine, Wisconsin. I'd just been elected. It was 1979, Paul Weyrich organized it. It was a meeting of conservative activists. And we talked about the long-term future of the conservative movement and how to become an effective majority. Paul Weyrich was doing what then, and why would you go there? 
Warwick was the head of the Free Congress Foundation, and in the 70s, I think you'd have to say he may have been the most innovative conservative activist in the country. He helped found the Moral Majority. He helped found uh, the, uh, the Heritage Foundation. Paul Weyrick is one of the most important people in the history of the modern conservative grassroots movement. We could make an entire podcast just about him. But what you need to know here is that he was instrumental in connecting evangelical Christians to Republican politics. He also pioneered fundraising through direct mail. And he helped to sharpen Gingrich's vision for how to retake the majority in Congress. Here's Wyrick in the late 1980s giving a speech to the Concerned Women of America and thanking the anti-feminist organization for its work. When I think of the conservative movement before the religious right got into it, we had very few divisions. We had some intellectual capacity. We had some ability to operate legislatively. But we didn't have a lot of troops. Gingrich and Weyrich needed troops to get a majority, and at least for a while, the populism of Gingrich aligned with the stringent faith of Weyrich. And if we ever get our act together and we organize properly, there is nothing that we can't win, and there is nobody that we can't elect and nobody we can't defeat. The alliance spoke to Gingrich's drive to find and to tap into those populist veins of politics. The more activist allies he could make outside of Congress, the more pressure he could exert on his fellow Republicans inside the House to join the cause. Which brings us back to those TV cameras. C-SPAN meant that Newton and his army didn't even have to leave D.C. to connect with grassroots activists. Every day the House of Representatives opens and any member can get up and speak for one minute on any topic they want. That's Vin Weber again. And here's Bob Walker. The Conservative Opportunity Society would meet some days and say, well, this is the issue that's in the press today. Um, Let's go out and talk about it. He means talk about it on TV now that C-SPAN is on the air all the time. And so we would line up about 10 of the members, and each of us did a one minute. One minute may not sound like a lot, but you can make a lot of trouble in one minute. The Conservative Opportunity Society began taking advantage of House rules to get their message out. And they had more than just those one-minute slots to work with. When the normal business of the day is done, any member of Congress can take out time for what they call special order and talk about anything he wants to. And we got pretty good at the special orders because we made them somewhat entertaining. Special orders. They can last up to an hour and members can tag each other in and out. So that we don't end up with that family further burdened by taxation, which is irresponsible and unnecessary if we'd simply get our fiscal house in order. Glad to yield to the gentleman from Georgia. Well, I very, very much appreciate the gentleman from Pennsylvania taking this time because I think that the country needs to understand the levels of irresponsibility. One minute speeches and special orders were the times when we in the minority could command uh, an audience on C-SPAN uh, on the topics that we cared about, because they had, if I remember correctly, at any given moment, about a half a million people watching. And as we always said, if, if you could speak to a half a million people, you would not turn down the opportunity. Viewed from 2022, what they're really doing is producing a precursor to what we would now see on cable news. It's the Newt Show. It airs just about every night on C-SPAN, and it's amassing a grassroots following. Mail and phone calls flood into the Capitol, and members of the Conservative Opportunity Society are suddenly in demand at conservative events all over the country. They're also starting to irritate the Democrats in the House, and soon 
They will enrage the most powerful Democrat of them all and spark a confrontation that will change their place in the House and the House itself for years to come. So it's now May of 1984. In the broadcast television world, they call this Sweeps Month. That's when all the big shows pull out all the stops to juice their ratings. Big-name guest stars, surprise twists, cliffhangers, you know the formula. In the House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich and the Conservative Opportunity Society are effectively producing their own show every night with their special order speeches. They've done this plenty of times before, but tonight, something unusual happens. I was alone on the floor because it was the same night as the big Republican Congressional Committee dinner. Bob Walker was speaking during special order time. If you were watching on C-SPAN, you couldn't see who he was speaking to. The camera had him in its usual tight frame until it didn't. All of a sudden, the uh, staff walked down and put a note on the podium in front of me saying, The cameras have been pulled back and they're showing that you're speaking to an empty chamber. And so I I responded to the fact that uh, I was told that the cameras have been pulled back. Uh, I do want to take a note of something that's uh, evidently happening right now, which um, is uh, a uh, a change of of procedure here. It is my understanding that as I deliver this special order this evening, uh, the cameras are panning this chamber demonstrating uh, that there is no one here in the chamber to listen to these remarks. So let's just paint the picture here. If you're watching Bob Walker on C-SPAN, one minute you're seeing a tight shot of him speaking, and then suddenly the camera angle changes. Now it's a big wide shot showing the entire house chamber, and it pans the room showing row after row of empty seats. In the moment, Walker understands this reveal to be a political move. And he makes one in response. It is one more example of how uh, uh, this body is run, uh, the kind of arrogance of power that uh, the members are uh, uh, given that kind of of, uh, change with absolutely no warning. Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, had done this. He and the Democratic leadership control the cameras in the chamber, not C-SPAN. And now he was exercising that control, and he was doing it to try to make Newt and his team looks small. Clearly, the speaker had won the battle. That's Chris Matthews, the writer, pundit, and of course, TV host. But back in 1984, he was Tip O'Neill's chief of staff. They had shown the Republicans for what they were doing. They were speaking to an empty chamber. They were acting as if the chamber was full and the Democrats were all in their seats. And they caught him red-handed and they could have just stopped right there. Right. They could have just stopped right there. But that's not what happened. You know, you're dealing with real emotions. And, uh, and, and Speaker O'Neill had real emotions. And his reaction was, I don't like these people for what they were doing there. I don't like the fact that they have used technology uh, to spread bad beliefs about my membership. So let's go back a bit and explain how this incident came about. See, O'Neill actually had his reasons for being furious with Walker, Weber and Gingrich. The feud that has been simmering for weeks between Democrats and a group of conservative Republicans finally reached the boiling point. None of this was escaping the media's attention. Judy Woodruff covered it on PBS. 
It all started a few weeks ago when the GOP's Newt Gingrich, a congressman from Georgia, publicly lambasted some Democratic House members for writing a letter to the head of the Marxist government in Nicaragua. Back in the mid-1980s, Nicaragua was a huge subject of debate. Radical Democrats perfected the technique of not holding left-wing governments accountable for their actions. A view of the modern world that is rigid, unyielding, and skewed. It's a world where America does nothing right. Gingrich and his allies were arguing that Democrats had a long history of being soft on Marxist regimes. Every time a communist movement takes power, Democratic congressmen say it will be fair, progressive, enlightened. Every time it's not, the blame goes to the United States. Or the Gingrich is speaking after hours on the House floor. Again, special order time, which, remember, means that he is basically talking to an empty chamber. But here's what really gets under the Democrats' skin. Gingrich is calling out representatives by name. Representative Tom Harkin had high hopes for the Sandinistas in July of 1979. Quote, Tom Downey, on the last nine... Representative Robert Garcia, quote, another congressman elected... In 19- Representative Howard Wolpe, quote, we have supported time and time again right-wing dictatorships that have been violative of the... Right Democrats the thought the camera angle, that close-up on Gingrich, made it look like he was attacking them to their faces, and that the average viewer would think that the Democrats were too cowardly to step forward and to defend themselves. Democrats immediately complained to House Speaker Thomas O'Neill, who retaliated last week by ordering TV cameras to pan the House floor so that when Republican members... And so that's why Tip O'Neill ordered the camera angle to be changed a couple of nights later when Bob Walker was speaking. Chris Matthews told me that O'Neill was especially mad because he thought these upstart Republicans were questioning the patriotism of the Democrats they were calling out and that they were deliberately doing it in a moment when the Democrats weren't there to defend themselves. He didn't like these people. He thought that they were a new breed of of Republican that were coming in there to cause trouble and to go after people personally. There's a lot of that there uh, that hadn't been there before. The next week, O'Neill himself stood in the House during business hours and decried the special order speeches. C-SPAN told us it no longer has that tape, but from the transcript, we can see that O'Neill was most upset about Gingrich's speech on Nicaragua. He said that Gingrich was, quote, giving the thought and the idea that members of Congress were un-American. All of this set the stage for a showdown for the ages. One with its own name, Cam Scam, they called it back then. The next day... With the House chamber packed and reporters from every outlet looking on, Newt Gingrich took to the floor. The gentleman Mr. Speaker, from, uh, Mr. I rise to a question of personal privilege. Mr. Speaker, gentlemen of state, it's point of personal privilege. Which just means that Gingrich gets to talk. Yesterday, in my absence, the Speaker made certain allegations which are inaccurate and which uh, require correction. Tip O'Neill recognizes Gingrich and there's a hubbub as Gingrich comes before the House and as O'Neill, in a rare move, leaves his perch on the dais and joins his fellow colleagues seated on the floor. The members will kindly take their seats. Mr. Speaker. The members will kindly take their seats. The chair wants to listen with keen interest to the gentleman from Georgia. Gingrich pleads his case and says that he and his group were not calling out Democrats behind their backs, but that they had, in fact, invited Democrats to debate. We sent a letter on May 8th to every single member mentioned, and we said as follows. Dear colleague. Here's Democratic Congressman Tom Downey in response. 
Well, I would inform the gentleman on preliminary inquiries to my office. We have re we received no letter. Okay. Well, I can assure the gentleman we all three signed it. It was sent. This is when Tip O'Neill takes the bait. To deal with the backlog oh, now of listen, mail. we're just getting uh, away from Mr. the Speaker, issue. Mr. Speaker, may please. I have reclaim my time? We're, please? we're getting order. away from the issue. The gentleman yield to me. The issue, the issue comes down to one thing. Regular order, regular gentleman, order. Gentleman from Georgia, the gentleman from Georgia continue to yield. On what happened. I yield to the gentleman from California, and then I'll yield back. Regular order, Mr. Speaker. The gentleman from Georgia is recognized. You are making accusations that I... Regular order, Mr. Speaker. Gentleman yield. Remember, at this point, O'Neill, the House Speaker, is on the floor with the rest of the members. Now he's just arguing with Newt. Okay, I'll be delighted to yield to our distinguished Speaker if he wishes to continue this. Please use the microphone, Speaker. There is no question in my mind that the arguments and the statements that I said on this floor came to me by complaint of the members. First, that they had not been notified. I don't believe that they were notified. I believe that, truly, that they, they didn't get the mail in their office, number one. Number two... The speaker the challenges Gingrich point by point, getting more and more emotional, and then winding up here. My personal opinion is this. You deliberately stood in that well before an emptied house and challenged these people, and you challenged their Americanism. And it's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. Mr. Speaker, if I may reclaim my time, let me say, first of all, Mr. Speaker, I move that we take the Speaker's words down. There it is. And that's Trent Locke, the second-ranking Republican who caught it right away. Now, today's standards, O'Neill's outburst might seem mild, but in the House of 1984, it was a clear violation of decorum and debate, one of the House rules. He had directly referred to Gingrich, a fellow member of the House, and disparaged his character. Lott was now making a motion to have the Speaker's words taken down, essentially for the House parliamentarian to reprimand the Speaker. So now there's chaos. What Lott is calling for would be a major humiliation for Tip O'Neill. And it would also be the ultimate validation for Newt Gingrich. Finally, the ruling would, uh, rule is made. I would like to, the chair uh, feels that that uh, type of characterization should not be used in debate. Uh, after the chair's ruling... Tip O'Neill's words are taken down. They are stricken from the record. So for the first time in the history of the Congress, a speaker was disciplined and told that he had to sit down and couldn't uh, speak anymore on, for that day. So that was, a, I mean, a, a major confrontation uh, that was on the floor. That's Bob Walker. And Newt Gingrich, while he didn't speak with us, has also talked about the importance of the cam scam incident. Here he is in a C-SPAN interview telling Brian Lamb about Tip O'Neill's reaction. I mean, you, you, all he did was draw more attention to us. Were you sitting and waiting for him to do this? Well, we were hoping we'd goad him into something. We, we had no idea what he'd do, but we were hoping we would, we, we would keep agitating until they decided to attack us because we knew that the minute they attacked us, we'd become more significant and more people would pay attention to our debate. Cam Scam gave the Conservative Opportunity Society something to really shout about. They'd been railing for years about what they said was a corrupt Democratic machine that ran roughshod over the Republican minority. Now they could say the Speaker had just done it to them. Here's Bob Walker again. It did really raise our profile substantially at that point. When I watched that day, the full session, 
what I notice is O'Neill gets disciplined, Gingrich has the floor, keeps the floor then for 20 or 30 minutes afterwards, and when he leaves, he leaves to a standing ovation on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that moment did for him, for you and the Conservative Opportunity Society, and your standing with your fellow Republicans? Yeah, I mean, it was the first instance where uh, Newt became seen as a future leader. Now, I'll tell you a post story on that. Some years later, after Tip had retired, um, I saw him down in the tunnel that connects the House Rayburn building to the, uh, to the Capitol. And uh, he, so we were talking down there, and he finally said to me, he says, Walker, you and Gingrich owe me. And I said, why is that, Tip? He said, because until I took you guys on, you were nothing but backbenchers that nobody knew, and I made you into national figures. And I said, tipped you right, thanks. <laughs> and he laughed. When we're back, another showdown in the House further raises Newt Gingrich's profile. And this time, it starts to win over his party's establishment. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Cam scam happened in May of 1984. This is one year later, May 1985. In the House, the battle over the Indiana 8th ended today, finally, ended dramatically by a vote of... On NBC, Tom Brokaw hands off to reporter Bob Kerr. Republicans accused the Democrats of stealing the election and worse. Rapists attempt to humiliate their victims. They attempt to dominate them. And that is exactly what the Democrat majority has tried to do. Now, in order to explain where this strong language is coming from, we've got to go back six months, back to election night in November of 1984. And in the 8th District of Indiana, that's the Evansville and southwest corner of the state. The the, bloody uh, 8th, an Indiana congressional district that already has a reputation for two decades worth of close contests and sharp elbows. But what happens in the wake of the 1984 election takes everything to a brand new level. And it becomes Exhibit A in Newt Gingrich's case to his fellow Republicans that they're being trampled by the Democrats that run the House and that the only answer is to join his war against them. On election night in Indiana's 8th District, the race is razor thin. The uh, freshman Democrat, Frank McCloskey, going for his second term, is trailing the Republican 
Richard McIntyre, that's a 54% to 46% with about 12% of the precincts in. But it appears that Frank McCloskey, a first-term Democrat running for re-election, has survived by the skin of his teeth. So this gets really complicated. Tabulation errors are discovered in two precincts in Gibson County in the 8th District. And when those totals are adjusted, the Republican, Rick McIntyre, suddenly takes the lead by just 34 votes. And at this point, more than a month after the election, the Indiana Secretary of State, who's a Republican, certifies McIntyre as the winner. And Republicans believe they've picked up a seat. But McCloskey, the Democrat, won't concede. He says there's irregularities in other counties, too, and that further recounts are needed. And he says he's going to take this matter to the full House of Representatives. And that's the key here. The Constitution says the House is the ultimate judge of its elections. And of course, at this point, the House is controlled overwhelmingly by the Democrats. So in January of 1985, on the first day of the new session, two men show up for the job. NBC's Jamie Gangel laid out the confusion. The problem, both men claim they won. At first, McCluskey had the numbers. Then it was McIntyre. Then it was McCluskey. Then it was McIntyre again. On this day, the House doesn't seat either of them. Instead, it says it's going to conduct its own investigation. Outnumbered, Republicans already say it won't be fair. Power is corrupt. You're seeing it happen here today. A month later, the House sets up a special task force of three members to investigate the election. It'll have two Democrats on it and only one Republican. I spoke with one of those Democrats, Leon Panetta. Back then, he was a congressman from California. How did you get roped into the role you played in that one? (laughs) Well, in addition to the other committees I was on, I was a member of the House Administration Committee. And the House Administration Committee is the committee that Uh, selects committees uh, in order to do recounts in close elections. This sounds incredibly bureaucratic, I know. But Panetta becomes the head of the task force that's supposed to make a formal recommendation on who the rightful congressman is. And in the meantime, Indiana is still doing its own recounts. Will the real congressman please stand up? That's NBC's Connie Chung introducing a story from correspondent Ken Bodie. Two lawyers and an insurance man drawing the handsome salary of $10 a day to recount the votes in Vandenberg County. What Bodie is describing is a district-wide recount conducted in January. Each county has its own rules and its own procedures. And when it's all over and counted, McIntyre's lead has gone up to 418 votes. So again... He's declared the winner by the Indiana Secretary of State. And again, Republicans in the House ask for him to be seated. And again, in a party line vote, Democrats refuse. They want to wait on the task force. And the task force, or at least the two Democrats on it, has some real questions about the recount. In Vandenberg, they're counting votes where the seals were broken and ballots weren't secure. In other counties, they are not. In some counties, there is a wide discrepancy in how different counties are conducting their recounts. Democratic Judge Redwine told his commissioners not to worry if the ballots weren't initialed. If the intent of the voter is clear, he said, count them and count them all by hand. So now it's up to the task force. Again, Democrat Leon Panetta is the chair and Bill Clay of Missouri is the other Democrat. The Republican 
is Bill Thomas from California. They set up shop in Indiana, they bring in a team of auditors and get to work. For months, the process drags on through the winter all the way into the spring. And back in Washington, as you might imagine, Republicans are growing impatient and angry. And there is no louder or more persistent voice encouraging these feelings than Newt Gingrich. He's in his fourth term now, and he goes on Meet the Press to make his case that Democrats are playing dirty here. The question is not, frankly, how do you recount or should you recount? The question is, first of all, historically, we always seat the man who has a certificate. When we've had close elections with Democrats, including this year, where there's an election contest in Idaho, we seated the man who has a certificate. Second, no, let's ask now, why, let's why not seat the man with the certificate and then... First off, the constitutionally, we're supposed to seat the person who won the seat. There is a question as to who won the seat. That's Tony Quello, a Democratic congressman from California. The bloody eighth is becoming a rallying cry for Newt. To his fellow Republicans in Congress, he offers it as more proof of what he's been saying for years now, that the Democratic majority is trampling all over them and that it's time to fight back. I'm perfectly willing to have a recount. I am not willing to have... The people of Indiana deprived of a voice now for over two months. And I think it's a very dangerous precedent to set this up. In April of 1985, things finally come to a head. And it comes down to Vanderburg County. That's the largest county in the district. It's where the city of Evansville is. Vanderburg uses punch card ballots. And a lot of them, nearly 4,000 in fact, have been tossed out in the county's recount. And a fair number of them are from heavily black precincts. Now, many of the ballots have markings on them, holes that are partially punched or dents, offering some clue, maybe, of the voters' intent. The whole country would learn all about this after the 2000 presidential election in Florida. The task force holds a public hearing in Evansville. The room is packed. Emotions are high. They go through the disputed ballots, voting what to count and what not to count. It takes hours, but almost without fail, every vote is two to one. The two Democrats, Panetta and Clay, on one side and the Republican, Bill Thomas, on the other. And the end result, by a total margin of four votes. Let me repeat that. Four votes. The task force calls Frank McCloskey, the Democrat, the winner of the election. Here's how Panetta reflected on the whole process in our interview. I really thought it was important that we try to uh, approach it in a bipartisan way. Uh, and we did. We, we actually worked out standards for uh, counting the votes. Uh, I, I have to tell you that uh, <laughs> the biggest problem uh, in that vote is that it came down to four votes. I wish it came down to 400 or 4,000 votes, but it came down to four votes. So the task force recommends that McCloskey be declared the winner and seated. Now the action returns to D.C. and it's up to the full house to accept or to reject that recommendation. And the floor debate is memorable. Here's Bill Thomas. Remember, he was the only Republican on the task force. This entire sordid affair started on January 3rd with the big lie. That there was a question over who the people had chosen in Indiana's 8th Congressional District election night. And he goes on. Much has been said about black voters not being counted. But when the task force on a two-to-one partisan vote said it was ready to quit counting, it was white votes that remained on the table. Honorable men and women are colorblind. They do not defend the rights of blacks 
and then remain silent when others are disenfranchised. Thomas is white and Bill Clay, the other Democrat on the task force, is black. And he's the next member to be recognized. For him to stand in this well and talk about the concern of the task force, or the Democrats on the task force, at first was for black voters not being denied the right to have their votes cast. And then to talk about now we're denying white voters the right to have their votes counted, I think raises some very serious questions. What we're talking about here is the right of every voter in the 8th District of Indiana to have his votes counted. The debate continues, and about an hour later, the Republican leader, Bob Michael, Mr. Nice Guy himself, rises to speak. Raw power alone does not or should not decide this or any other case. The McIntyre case is but one example of a consistent abuse of, or misuse of power by the majority. His outrage, the sense of victimhood, is exactly what Newt Gingrich has been going for all along. And now, Bob Michael lays the blame for anything that might happen next at the feet of the Democrats. And if a majority persists in this folly, they'll have poisoned the wells of civility in this House. Things will never be the same. Let it be upon your heads if this is the case. Leon Panetta was part of this debate, too. And he told me that in that moment, he saw something big happening. The level of rhetoric coming um, from Republicans. Yeah, that was that was one of the beginnings. And, uh, you know, I, I guess what I regret from all of that is that it really did hurt the institution of the House. And, and, and the fact is, uh, Republicans suffered from that, just like Democrats. But... Uh, by undermining trust in the House of Representatives, it was the beginning of, of, of what we've seen more recently, which is undermining the institutions of our democracy. And that's dangerous. One day after that floor debate, on May 1st, 1985, it's time for the full House to vote. The moment itself is anticlimactic. With a large Democratic majority, the House approves the task force's report, which means that six months after the election, the Democrat, Frank McCloskey, will finally take his seat. But in this moment, Bob Michael does something different, something that might not fit with the old gentleman's code of the House. He asks to end the day's session on the spot before O'Neill can swear in McCloskey. The speaker, in view of that vote, uh, the last vote, I move we adjourn. Uh, would the gentleman withhold until I have an opportunity to swear in uh, Mr. Frank McCluskey? No, Mr. Speaker, the purpose... Do I understand that the gentleman is to adjourn immediately? O'Neill looks bemused, but he moves forward with a recorded vote at Michael's request. And as they cast their votes, Republicans then head for the exits. The old gentleman's coat is being tossed right out the window here. They're staging a walkout. And that includes Bob Michael. At one point, O'Neill even calls out to his old friend and asks him to stay. But Michael says no. On this one, even he's with Newt. So McCloskey gets sworn in. Mr. Frank McCluskey will raise his right hand. Do you solemnly swear that you'll support and defend the... And the Democrats gather around to congratulate him. But later that day, Republicans make clear that this is not a matter that they'll be letting go of anytime soon. On this issue, you have torn that special fabric that holds us together 
as a House of Representatives. That's Pat Roberts from Kansas. He's an establishment Republican, not a disruptor like Gingrich in the Conservative Opportunity Society. It would appear, Mr. Speaker, that we have two kinds of folks in the majority. Those who listen and work with the Republican minority and those who do not believe we are full-fledged partners in this House in baseball. Roberts is exactly the kind of of Republican Gingrich has been trying to win over. And the bloody eighth seems to have done it. You people dish it out every day, but you sure can't take it. The situation with the bloody eighth established the Conservative Opportunity Society as people who who may just be doing the right thing. This is Gingrich's ally, Bob Walker, again, who was there that day. You know, that maybe we haven't been activists enough. Maybe we've come, become too passive. Uh, maybe they are running over us like a Mack truck. So the Democrats get their seat from Indiana's 8th District. But Newt gets something bigger. Republicans who'd been skeptical of him, wary of him, suspicious of him, are starting to come around. The Bloody Eighth wins him converts. And for years to come, House Republicans will feel like they have something to avenge. When I spoke with Leon Panetta, I asked him to reflect on that moment. When the, the, the vote to seat McCloskey took place and all of the Republicans, including Bob Michael, walked out of the chamber, um, what was going through your mind? Thinking back on it, um, I obviously thought it would be a hell of a lot better if we were able to to come to a consensus as to uh, what happened. But I also recognized that uh, once it became a, a strategy to undermine the House, I thought we are now in a very different world. The Bloody Eighth leaves Republicans in a fighting mood. They may have lost this round, but soon, Gingrich would set his sights on the biggest target imaginable in the House, the Democratic Speaker, and he would convince his fellow Republicans that they could actually topple him. That's next on The Revolution. We made multiple requests to speak with Newt Gingrich for this podcast, but he was never made available. And then, after this series was released, we did hear from him. And you'll hear that conversation in Episode 7. From MSNBC, this is the second of six episodes of The Revolution. If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The Revolution was written and hosted by me, Steve Kornacki. The series is produced by Franny Kelly, Ursula Summer, and Adam Naboa. It's edited by Allison McAdam. Our associate producer is Eva Ruth Moravec. Special thanks to Lacey Roberts. Sound designed by Ramtin Arablui. Bryson Barnes is our technical director, and he wrote our music. Soraya Gage is our executive producer. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. 
so you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.